hello to my network. My name is Maryam Toure, and I want to welcome you back to my new series, Why Law, Why You? I took a short break for exams, but I'm back with some new episodes, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, with this series of interviews and articles, I'm looking to put representation at the forefront by showcasing the stories of inspiring women lawyers across Canada who are doing impactful work, not only in their field of practice, but in their own communities. Today, I'm lucky enough to sit down with Medcolin Belfleur. Colin is an experienced lawyer in the fields of immigration, refugee, and carceral law, as well as an active member in the legal community and a strong advocate against the Bill 21. She completed her legal studies in Europe, notably at the University of Strasbourg, the University of Birmingham, and obtained master's degrees from the University of Grenoble and the Institut des Autres Etudes Européennes de Strasbourg. Following her studies, Colleen gained uh, several legal experiences at the international level before establishing herself here in Quebec. Colleen, welcome and thank you for being here. Hi. So we'll jump right into the first questions. Can you start by telling us more about your backstory? So who you are, where you come from, and how you got into law? Okay, so I, I come from a, a working class town in France. So uh, why, why I'm saying that is because it's not like the most exciting part of France to, to be, right? <laughs> uh, my uh, mother is a secretary, my dad is a police officer. And uh, I guess, you know, I just had a very uh, um, quiet and okay life growing up. It was fine, uh, but I did not grow up in a place with so many opportunities, right? And in a way, it was good because it prevented me from being uh, career-oriented from a, a young age. So, you know, I had the opportunity just to enjoy life and enjoy myself without focusing on what I should do to achieve such and such goals. And uh, being ambitious as I am, uh, it, it protected me from myself, I think. <laughs> uh, so until I was on the third, on my third year of law school, I, you know, stayed there uh, in Strasbourg, which is not too far away from where I grew up. And then I went to Birmingham for an exchange program. And from there, from there, from that point, I almost did not live in France anymore. I came back from my uh, second year of master degree for about six, seven months. And, but aside from that, you know, between the internship and experiences abroad and uh, studying abroad, I almost uh, did not come back to France to live there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, uh, I moved to Quebec, I immigrated to Quebec as a permanent resident uh, more than 10 years ago, and I completed my, my studies here, and we can talk a bit uh, more about that later. Uh, but I like I chose law, I chose to go uh, into law school. Uh, that was my first choice. It's mm -hmm. not like I had to redirect, uh, you know, my uh, um, my project or anything. So I chose to to do that, and then I just you know follow the the, the classes and the <laughs> different levels. Uh, but music used to play a very important part of my life as well. And for a while, I. I was very torn. <laughs> what would I decide? I go muse, do music at a more professional level, or you know, uh, become a lawyer. I became a lawyer. I kept playing music, teaching music for a while, uh, but uh, I did not manage to <laughs> successfully do both at the same time. And like right now, uh, I'm really more. Uh, focused on on law and legal stuff and i'm i'm fine with it it just uh, 
and maybe you know music will be back at some point i don't know but uh, uh, that were like i would say the two main area of interest that i had for a while uh, together and uh, I know there is a colleague that is also an opera singer here in Montreal. Uh, I'm very, very impressed <laughs> by the fact that she's able to be a lawyer and a professional opera singer. Uh, I was not able to, to do that. Okay. So what, if, do you sing or is it an instrument? That no, I, will, uh, I play the saxophone. Okay, that's amazing. I, I, I love like how it's completely two different things, but it's still so beautiful. Um, and well, you said it yourself, you studied in Europe in different countries, you had a legal experience abroad and also in different countries. Why did you settle on Quebec? Uh, no particular reason. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I was interested in uh, having living experience elsewhere than France abroad. Mm -hmm. And there, there aren't so many countries where you can just apply to immigrate as a permanent resident. Yeah. Uh, uh, Canada was one of them. And uh, so we just, like, I was already married at the time uh, and we decided to, to just come here mm -hmm. as immigrants uh, with the plan to stay here, but you know, without necessarily, like it would have been okay if we decided not to stay here either. It was not like my big plan for life and I did not have uh, extraordinary expectations uh, coming here. It was just like another project, a new exciting project and, uh, so we ended up staying here, uh, yeah. but you know, it was more, yeah, something to try. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I like that, that it was just, there was no particular reason. I feel like with so many immigration stories, people think that it's always for a better life because you're mm -hmm. looking away from something. Sometimes it's just to discover a new place sometimes. Yeah, and see if it's a fit, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, well, you already were able to acquire legal experience in Europe, do you feel that the representation of Muslim women in the legal community in Europe is the same as it is here or is it different? Like what, what has been your observation regarding that? Well, I didn't work really in Europe. Like I did volunteering internships, but you know, I, I was not really in the workforce. So uh, my, uh, my understanding of it may be limited, but what I do know is that for the at least for the visibly Muslim women that wear the hijab, it's it's almost impossible to work in the, what it is prohibited to work in the public sector in France, if I speak about France, and it's almost impossible to work even in the private sector because of discrimination. It's really, really difficult. And pretty much every week I receive uh, you know, um, emails or LinkedIn messages from law students, uh, lawyers who just graduated uh, wearing the hijab, trying to find a way to practice somewhere. And Quebec, you know, for some of them is uh, an avenue they, they want to consider. So clearly it's really hard to find a job. And at, I know that at least for some of them, they're challenging, a, um, you know, a, a prohibition to plead, go to court with the hijab. And one of them is actually preparing a case before uh, what's the equivalent of the Supreme Court in France. Um, and, and there, there are a few Muslim hijab wearing women that are really trying to make their place in the Muslim legal community in France and it's extremely hard. Uh, whereas here in Quebec, while we, we are here, there is, you know, uh, a good community 
Muslim legal community, generally speaking, and it's growing and we have peer support and we really, we're really working really hard to build that, to build that sense of confidence to encourage also members from the Muslim community to become lawyers, because that's a profession that doesn't have a good uh, um, publicity within the Muslim community uh, and, and other communities for that matter. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, it's it's completely different context uh, from the, the from what I know, which may not be, you know, uh, exactly um, uh, maybe I don't have the full picture because I didn't work in France, but clearly it's very different. Okay. And when you came here, like even outside of the legal community, were you apprehending the, the stigma that people sometimes have around Islam, around um, people in the Muslim community? Is, some, is that something you were prepared for and you were already maybe worried about? I wasn't because I wasn't even Muslim at the time. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I guess I would not have been either way because, you know, before you immigrate to Quebec, you have like um, an information information session, you know, for immigrants yeah. back, so back in France. And they really sell you uh, Canada and Quebec as this amazing society where, uh, you know, it's so much more open. It is, and it is, you know, if you compare it to France, but uh, it's so great and it's so safe. And I remember thinking that it would be so boring to be a criminal lawyer in Quebec because <laughs> clearly you have nothing to do because it's so safe, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and uh, so even though I did not have a naive conception of Quebec or nothing overly optimistic, I still had an image that was much more optimistic than the, than the reality because of what they sell us. They sell us, you know, before you come here. But with regards to the stigma towards the uh, Muslim community, I, well, I arrived more than 10 years ago, so it was much better Better at the time. It was just starting to, you know, yeah. the situation and the social climate was just starting to get worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did not catch up on that at the very beginning, mm -hmm. including because I was not a Muslim at the beginning. Um, and it is still better today, even though it's going so bad, mm -hmm. you know, so badly, it's still much better than the French context. So. To answer your question, I'd say I was not really aware of it, but there wasn't so much to be aware of it at the time. Mm -hmm. Right now, like, would be very much different. And when I'm contacted by uh, Muslims, Muslim women specifically, that are looking to immigrate to Quebec because they cannot find a job in France, mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm careful to let them know that yes, it's yes, it's better here, but it's maybe not so much better as you can imagine. Exactly. Exactly. And like um, in law school, I have a, there's a few of my fellow students who do wear the hijab and they, they spoke about their experience in class at some point. And it's like, sometimes we'll just get comments when you're, you're at the bus stop or when you're looks, when you're walking in the, in the public space. And like uh, the way she was talking about it, she was like, it, it doesn't necessarily affect me. Like I kind of brush it away, but at the end of the day, it, it's still not right. It's it's still not the way someone should be treated. And it's really disappointing that that's something you have to deal with. And even if you grew up here, like it's something your parents probably have to tell you like, okay, you're going to go through this. Your people are gonna treat you this way. And it's not because you deserve it. It's just because that's the view they have of, of our community. 
And even when it doesn't affect you personally, if you're lucky enough to never have been harassed or anything, um, it it has a psychological impact. You know, any my any person member of a minority groups will be more exposed to any kind of news relating to that group, any attack on that group, any uh, injustice committed against that group. And so, whenever there is something happening, even if if uh, you know. Uh, I'm not concerned at all personally, but it does affect me. It's in my mind and it uh, sometimes affects my capacity to focus on my work. It's, it's a real thing, you know, and that is true for any minority group. Um, we share a burden with other members of the community and that's a very real thing. Mm -hmm. it's just in discussions with my parents and with other people, um, some people with certain religions don't necessarily want to bring bring that forward in the workplace, in the, I don't know, at school, because they're scared of how people are going to react. But with like you and many other members of in the Muslim community, it's visible. You're like your religion is visible on you. So you don't have that choice of being able mm -hmm. to like not disclose it if you don't want to share it with ev everyone. Mm -hmm. How does, I don't know, how does that make you feel that that well, I still have the choice not to not to speak about it. You know, I will never let myself be bullied into speaking about it just because you can see that I'm Muslim. Mm -hmm. If it's not in an appropriate context, if you know, sometimes people will ask very personal questions, and I'm just like, this is not on your business, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, but most people really uh, don't comment. You know, they mm -hmm. they respect that this boundary that even if you're visibly Muslim, you know, unless you you build with them a specific relationship that goes, you know, uh, above, let's say, just uh, work relationships. But yeah. maybe you become friends, and you know, after a while, then you will have some discussions. That's uh, that's fine. Uh, but usually, I would say people respect this boundary. And I'm also a person that I think uh, doesn't open the door for more than what I'm uh, I'm ready to speak mm -hmm. about. So I guess they feel that as well. Yeah. <laughs> And um, just to move on to the next question, um, in a past interview, you, you spoke about the whole process of uh, when you arrived here, uh, the process you had to go through to obtain your, um, well, accreditation and be able to access the Quebec Bar School. And I'm wondering, because you had already done your studies in Europe and um, you, you already were able to do a couple internships, how did you, did you feel frustrated in any way that you had to go back to university, take more classes, and when you were clearly qualified to, to do the work? I did, I did feel frustrated. Not because I had to go back uh, to university as such. It's, I think it's good to go back to university for a while. Uh, you meet people, you understand how the system works, and uh, it, it's okay, you know, and, and really you make connections that are useful for your, uh, your career afterwards. I mean, it's, uh, it's very positive overall. Uh, the thing is, is that they, I believe that they ask too many things, too many credits of me. And plus they evaluate your profile. And if you need to apply to the Quebec bar, for instance, they will impose uh, some classes for you that are not necessarily the same that any regular law student would have as uh, compulsory classes. For instance, uh, because apparently it's what uh, it is deemed necessary to do the Quebec bar, I was obliged to do uh, bankruptcy law as well as tax law. 
And you can see from my practice today, that's definitely not my area of interest. So I wish I'd had more flexibility as well to do to choose classes that I actually had an interest about. Mm -hmm. And uh, also they really impose like basic classes, like the first contract law class. And I remember scoring 100% at that exam and not even assisting to one single class. And that's that was very frustrating. That was just a loss of time, really. Uh, so not it's not the fact to go back to university, that's fine. It's just that it's very, from what they ask about me, uh, that was inadequate, in my opinion. Maybe it's better today, maybe they ask less, maybe it's more uh, flexible, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But yes, I did feel some frustration. <laughs> and uh, when you got into bar school and then you ended up doing your internship for the bar, did you feel you were at a, like, maybe a bit ahead from the rest of the students because you you had all that background? Yes, I, I, I felt it. And, you know, for one thing, students here usually, I mean, people, you know, doing the, the, the Quebec bar, they don't have a master degree, whereas in Europe, everyone has a master degree. So I was, you know, advanced in that sense. Uh, plus, yes, I had, I've had, had the time to gain some practical experience as well. So I definitely did not feel like uh, it was a problem that I did not have a bachelor degree from Quebec. Uh, it was never raised in any of the interviews I had. Um, clearly, you know, it was not an issue at all. Okay. And well, now you're working independently at your own account. Can you tell us about the different mandates that you're you're brought to take on? So, in terms of immigration law, uh, I have I do a bit of refugee claims and appeals and things like that. But uh, I have a practice that's also very focused on inadmissibilities, criminal inadmissibilities, security inadmissibilities. Uh, so uh, this means that, you know, I represent people that sometimes used to be permanent residents, but lost it because of criminality. Uh, I do stay or removals. I go to the federal court. Uh, I also do more regular, uh, you know, um, I'd say files like challenging a refusal from a study permit or sponsorship application. Um, and I'm sometimes, uh, I sometimes have to accompany clients throughout their CSIS uh, investigation. So CSIS is like the Canadian, you know, secret yeah. officers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's also, uh, you know, a significant part of what I do mm -hmm. and accompanying them through the process, making sure that their rights are respected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in terms of prison law, I, so that's a big part of it is uh, parole hearings. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there is everything that can go wrong inside a prison when you're a prisoner. Uh, so uh, anything about how the, the, your, your, if you want to challenge your security level that they, uh, they say you are, let's say, a maximum security level, but you want to challenge that to obviously have the possibility to have access to more privileges, etc. Yeah. Uh, if you want to challenge um, you know, whatever sanctions they impose on you in as part of a disciplinary hearing inside the prison. Uh, so that's very, um, it's very different from immigration law, but it's still administrative law. So sometimes we can end up also in court doing judicial reviews. I do, I do judicial reviews in both immigration and uh, carceral law. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it's very, uh, 
it's a very challenging practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a lot of files that will uh, be similar to one another. I mean, obviously, you know, you have mm -hmm. cases that will have similarities, but every single case needs research and needs, you know, uh, a very specific preparation. I'm also sometimes uh, filing complaint to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations. That's one thing I never thought I would do as a regular lawyer. And it's actually something that quite a few lawyers do. I mean, at least, you know, in my, uh, in my network. Mm -hmm. And so this allows me also to tie everything back to the human rights training that I have, you know, uh, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And well, how did you gravitate specifically to these fields of practice? As you said, you talked about your human rights training. Is it also your immigration story to Quebec or like why specific fields? It has nothing to do with me immigrating to another country. I discovered immigration law quite early uh, when I was a student. You know, in France, I, I was involved with people uh, without documentation, without immigration documentation. And in France, it's a very intense context, meaning that you can be in a train, for instance, and then the custom border patrol will enter the train, close the door and shut ID control. And then they will take away people who have no proper immigration status. It's, I remember we were doing uh, legal advice in a clinic, sort of like a clinic. And sometimes we would see police officers like, you know, near the place, clearly waiting around, seeing if someone would come. And we had a back door. And sometimes we would let people <laughs> out by the back door so that they don't cross path with the police officers in front. Yeah. So that was kind of a crazy context. And that's when I really realized uh, that that's really a field with human rights implication. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's in, in our uh, countries, you know, in the Western countries, immigration is really one of the fields with the most human rights issues um, at stake. And prison law was also related to the fact that I used to teach, pre I used to teach uh, law and French as a student more like a mentor mm -hmm. uh, to prisoners who decided to enroll in law, class, law classes mm -hmm. uh, in France again. So I had that experience with uh, the, prison, uh, the prison system. And um, when I started my practice, I actually uh, remember that I liked that, uh, you know, <laughs> that I liked that. Uh, this is not something I started from the very beginning. I did not do criminal law. I did not do prison law when I started being a lawyer. But when I opened my practice, I was like, yes, this is definitely something I want to go back to. And I'm so glad that I did. It's a bit stressful to start a new field of law when you're already experienced in other fields of law, because there is sort of a discrepancy between your level of uh, expertise <laughs> in both fields. And so you need to be comfortable starting from the beginning in, in one of them. Uh, it's a bit of a challenge, but uh, I'm really glad I did because it's, uh, it really allows me to do two different things two yeah. different things you know immigration and prison law and uh and it's very complementary and really fits with what i i wanted to do first okay. wow so just when you spoke about the the things you did in france that whole context of the police coming around the office and even you teaching in prisons those are like crazy experiences but also very beautiful so that, that's amazing um and like you you already spoke about a few challenges in the practice, 
but um, I'm wondering what are the challenges related maybe to the clientele? Because this is like a very, like you're serving very vulnerable people is, are there challenges that arise from that in particular? Um, well, I, I don't have like big issues with clients. Uh, it's just that some, for some of them, they have so many problems in their life that their legal file is not the first one uh, on top of the list. Mm -hmm. So you need to uh, follow them closely, you know, uh, send reminders. I'm still waiting for that document. I still need that from you. Uh, so I guess with such clientele, you need to be a bit more proactive. You cannot just say, okay, I send an email uh, with bold characters so they know and it's uh, their responsibility now. If you really want to help those people, you need to be a bit more proactive. Uh, but again, it's not all clients. I mean, there are clients in very vulnerable situations that are um, very focused and, you know, um, very organized. I mean, it doesn't always, you, you have different personalities as well, like, like anywhere. And uh, even though they're, uh, some of them like don't have a lot of money, obviously, um, the cases that I do are so important. They have, you know, they're, re they're really sometimes life or death uh, issues at stake that, that they can usually, uh, they, they have a network ready to help them. Um, so they're, you know, when you have someone that's arrested, being detained, at risk of being removed, uh, it's it's more easy. It's easier, I guess, to um, to find people ready to support you, to pay for you, because it's it's so it's such an urgent and grave matter. Mm -hmm. And um, just curiosity again, why did you choose the route of going with an independent practice instead of? maybe working just in an immigration firm or a criminal law firm? Was it always a dream of you to, to do that? It, it wasn't. Uh, I don't come from a family where, you know, with entrepreneurship values and things like that. So honestly, when I became a lawyer, it did not even cross my mind to open my uh, my own office. You know, it was natural for me. Okay, you look for a job and, and that's the yeah. regular way to do. I'm very impressed with people who actually open their practice right after their, their articling position. That's very, for me, that's a very bold move. I would not have been ready to do that when I started. Um, but after a while, you realize that, you know, being on your own allows you to do exactly what you like. And the two areas of practice that I do, uh, I don't think any anyone else does it together. So, so it really allows me to, only work on the cases that I like, the way I like, uh, charging people what I think is reasonable and appropriate, having that flexibility to charge more or less depending on the case, etc. So I really, I was really looking for that flexibility and doing exactly what I liked on a daily basis and not having to compromise, you know, on uh, the kind of uh, files that I worked on. Um, and plus, I guess I was very influenced by the fact that my husband did an MBA <laughs> right before I started. And I kind of did an MBA as well, you know? And <laughs> and when you do that, apparently uh, at the end of the day, you're just like, I, I don't have to work for anyone. That's not the way to do things, right? And so it really motivated me and I guess inspired me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, all of that put together, I was also at the point of my career was I was feeling very comfortable working on my own, making my own decisions, having a, a good, a strong enough legal knowledge 
uh, you know, even though I still have mentors, I still have people, yeah. colleagues I call to exchange, etc. But uh, I felt comfortable being on my own at that point of my life. I would not have been when I started. Okay. And how do you view your practice evolving in the next few years? Do you, do you want to like, I don't know, have partners at your firm or have it grow? Uh, well, well, I'm hiring right now. <laughs> if I can make a bit of an advertisement, I'm looking for someone to work with me, a young lawyer, ideally. Um, so I feel I like working alone, but I, unfortunately, I have to refuse many clients, many cases, because, uh, you know, there is uh, so much thing one single person could do. And so I would like, ideally, maybe be at the end, like two, three lawyers, you know, being able to have a strong practice, focusing on uh, challenging complex cases, especially cases involving inadmissibilities, because that's that's where uh, really I find the most uh, uh, crazy and sad stories, really, you know. So, um, yeah, I wish uh, I, I, I would be able, I hope I would be able to train other people to do that kind of cases mm -hmm. and to do it with me, ideally, so we can share a bit of that, uh, that burden, so to speak, because there is a, there are a lot of needs in Montreal, in Quebec, on those issues and not so many lawyers tackle those issues mm -hmm. so yeah i'm ready to work with someone so anyone if anyone is interested get in touch with me um and you're also very implicated in the legal community so you do pro bono work um you assisted in legal clinics you you co-founded the quebec chapter of the canadian muslim lawyers association so well, one, could you start by talking a bit about why it was so important for you to get implicated, to be known in the legal community? I do, yeah, I do so much pro bono work, probably more than what a sane person would do. <laughs> um, a bit less now that I'm uh, on my own, because, you know, uh, you, you have to make sure that what you do of your time is financially viable at the end of the day. Uh, but it was... It was always well. It was a way to gain experience for sure, uh, but it was always very natural. I was actually very eager to become a lawyer to be able to do more pro bono help because as a student, there is so much you can do. You yeah. know, you're limited in your capacity uh, about how you can help people. So you see people needing help. You see people having so much trouble finding a lawyer, and you cannot do anything about it. <laughs> So I was, I remember being so happy when I finally became a lawyer and became able to provide that help. But finally, I had the title, I had the skills to provide that help. Um, obviously, you cannot just do pro bono work, but for me, it was always like a big, big part of what, I, what I'm doing on a daily basis. And there are things for which it can only be done pro bono, unfortunately, because there will never be fundings for certain things and there will never be uh, you know people uh, able to pay for certain things so for me it's okay to do pro bono work uh, if it helps a greater cause and if it helps actually helps people mm -hmm. you, you spoke about like the limitations when it comes to being a student that you can't help so much and i'm experiencing that right now because i'm working in a, a community community organization as a well, law student, so I, I give information in family law, and it's like the fact that you can't give legal advice 
it's it's always very difficult because you know that the person needs more and like sometimes you're going to refer them to someone but you're not necessarily mm-hmm. sure if the person's going to be able to take on their case so it's like it's very difficult to be satisfied with the help that you're given because you know it's not enough mm-hmm. um but yeah that would lead into my next question um so when bill 21 was adopted here in quebec did you feel that the legal community was supporting you, was supporting the Muslim community? Uh, no, not really. Um, actually, I know that some people were against it, against Bill 21, but I also know for a fact that some of those people did not, were not vocal about it because they didn't want to upset their boss or some of their clients. Um, and I did not feel like uh, the legal community was very vocal about this issue. And when you think about it, you know, regardless of your idea of uh, the place of religiosity in the workplace or religious symbols, it's crazy that the legal community did not feel more concerned about that bill. It's uh, an extremely bad law uh, in terms of uh, human rights issues and the way it was uh, it was passed, you know, by using the derogatory clause and everything. And and we know that within the Quebec bar, within the Montreal bar, they are they are very strong advocate for bills, uh, Bill 21 and, uh, you know, laws alike. Um, so I guess it became a political, you know, something with political, uh, strong political views from one part and another, and they just maybe withdraw altogether from taking a, a strong stance against it. Uh, so there is all there are always lawyers. Uh, I'm 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 thinking more specifically. You know, the uh, progressive lawyer organization that have been very supportive, and some other lawyers in their personal capacity. But generally speaking. No, not at all. And that's very worrying. Mm-hmm. And, and how, like, how, how did that have an effect on you? And because we, I always hear that the legal world is such a small world that everyone knows each other. So like you probably encountered people that didn't necessarily have the same views as you on the bill. So how did that affect you? How did that affect your practice and the way you saw the legal world? Well, it doesn't, I, I cannot say that it really affected me. Like I did not have very high expectations uh, for the legal community uh, in regards to that matter. I was very um, aware of the of the positions of many lawyers, uh, you know, um, from the community, and so I, I was aware of the, the debate going on. I was aware of the pressures from one part or the other. So that did not really surprise me. I would not say it surprised me. And in terms of affecting me, uh, you know, in my daily practice, in my daily life, I try to surround myself with people that do support me. I don't need to have to deal with people that will uh, argue with me and uh, try to impose their views on me. So, uh, you know, it's not like, you don't let people get to you. And if they don't agree, that's fine. But when I'm in my office working, I don't want necessarily to argue with you about Bill 21. That's not the place, that's not the time, I have work to do. So you need to respect that boundary as well. You know, it's not about having different views, it's about the fact that 
I don't need to speak about it all the day, all day, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so again, it all comes back to the boundaries that you established. There are places, there are contexts where it's fine to argue, you know, discuss opposing views. But when I'm just living my life, don't come at me and try to argue with me out of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, how, how are you feeling? Like, are you feeling hopeful about how the situation might evolve? Because there are like court cases being prepared. Like you probably know uh, Nour Farad, who's involved in that, uh, a, a couple other lawyers who are trying to fight them. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling hopeful about how that's going to evolve? I'm feeling hopeful. This was a this was an amazing hearing. I mean, the work that the lawyers representing uh, individuals, you know, against Bill 21, was really, really amazing. <laughs> it was a uh, uh, it's a hearing. It's a legal discussion that went very far, uh, almost you know, in some ways, completely outside of the debate about laicity and all that, because that's not what's really happening right now. Um, and, you know, seeing the arguments from one part and the other, and even though it's uh, difficult for a judge uh, by the, you know, it's made difficult for the judge by the fact that uh, they use the derogatory clause, but um, uh, yeah, I- I'm still hopeful. So we'll see, we're still waiting for the judgment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're getting into our last few questions. Um, so when you look back on your entire journey so far, would you say that you chose a law career or that a law career chose you? I chose a law career, definitely. And I I keep choosing it. I would not stay uh, in something that does not fulfill me, does not make me uh, happy or useful. So I definitely chose a law career without any doubt. (laughs) (laughs) And you say it with such like assurance and confidence. Yes. I love that. And well, we recently just celebrated International Women's Day. Um, how are you feeling about the, the place that women will be given in the Quebec legal community in the next few years? And maybe do you have any words of advice for the young women in university or even younger than that? Well, it's, I guess it's getting better and better. I can see that one of the issues is by, you know, women accessing positions of power, especially in big uh, offices, big law offices, that's so outside of my legal world that it's hard for me to have an opinion on this. Uh, what I can tell is that, you know, in the office space, uh, in the office space that I share, it's almost only women lawyers. Uh, in prison law, it's almost only women lawyers. Um, so. As a woman, the good the good thing is that you will have a network of support uh, if you go out there, you know, to find it. Because we are, uh, at least in terms of numbers, we are uh, we are the majority, especially in some areas of law. Um, then I guess the challenge, like I said, would be to access such and such specific positions, and and it's it's clearly uh, going in the right direction. I mean like your podcast, the, the, the committees that are, um, being, that are being created in every law faculty, it allows people to connect even before they, they become lawyers uh, and to connect you know, in a way that, focus, that focuses on peer support. Yeah. And that's extremely important. And you know, once one of you, one of the group will get a position of power, she will be able to bring in the others. Yeah. So that's how it works. And that's why it's so important to have a network because 
it's not even saying, you know, it's not even saying that it's like bribery, corruption or anything. It's just that if you have to refer someone, well, you have, you, you have ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Ideas of people to suggest. And in order to suggest them, you need to know about them. <laughs> so that's why network is so important. And that's how I got interesting opportunities. And I'm really, uh, really careful to, you know, keep that ball going and keep this going and offering the same connections and opportunities to not, I'm still a young lawyer, but you know, they are even younger lawyers. So that's uh, very important to, to open that, keep the network system going, uh, you know, share information. Even when you become a lawyer, share uh, what you learn, share models of proceedings, share uh, legal knowledge that you got. That's how all of us can become better lawyers. And that's, I truly believe that that's how some of us, some of us that are interested will be able to gain, uh, to access positions of power at some point. Uh, so I'm also very optimistic about that. It's not like law, even with all the issues that we have, the legal world is not a man's world, really yeah. like in some maybe scientific fields. So if we do things properly, we'll be able to change things definitely. Well, thank you so much, Colleen, for partaking in this interview, for sharing your story. I appreciate it so much. And to my network, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to let me know who you want to see next week on the Why Law, Why You series. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Marianne. Have a nice day. Uh, okay. <laughs>